Okay. Howdy all. Welcome to uh, now our, this is our third, right, Mark? I haven't lost third, count. I'm no yeah, math major, yeah. but I think it's third. Third uh, podcast and uh, our third Zoom conversation. Um, Mark, Mark and I started these as a, as a brainstorm a little while ago. Uh, finally had an opportunity to start doing them just uh, with the beginning of the coronavirus. Um, and the, the podcast will eventually be called, you can look for it under the title of um, Unlikely Pilgrims. And what we're hoping to do with these is to really talk about how Christians um, are trying to somehow hold together their, their ancient faith with contemporary problems and contemporary crises and issues. Um, we, we, the church, come from all over the world. We're going to talk about that a bit today with, uh, with uh, Dr. Zimmerman. Um, and there's, that comes with a lot of challenges. How do we hold an ancient faith in a modern world with modern technology and coronaviruses? Or even from first world modern industrialized, post-industrialized societies like here with countries that are behind, but yet their faith and their churches are robust and their, uh, and their witness to the world is, is powerful. So the, what we're going to do in this and, and others is really sort of focus in on that relationship, that what we're calling negotiation. How, how do we as Christians negotiate? And, and we want to be clear what we mean by that is we're not saying that we're looking for ways to compromise our faith. We're saying how do we hold and not change our faith while we're facing changing situations. So the American church has, I think, been faithful over its history. It's got certainly some critical pieces to it and made some errors, um, but it's facing a new challenge now, um, globalization, global issues, global concerns, as, as well as something like the coronavirus. So how do we, and what we're talking through is how do we have our ancient faith be living in these moments and not be um, you know, taken over by cultural concerns or taken over by our own narrow background? So that's what we're trying to do here. Um, I don't know if Mark, you want to add anything else to the intro before we. No, I think that's good. I think this sort of segment, we're kind of sort of seeking God in the whirlwind, and right now we're looking at this whirlwind of of uh, pandemic, uh, and trying to hear from various voices throughout the church. And just to give you an example, I think with Dr. Farnham's uh, uh, interview the last time, uh, just the, the 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 influence of medical technology is causing us to have to negotiate some of these things differently than our grandparents would have had to have negotiated them. So yeah, so I think, yeah, that's exactly what we're trying to get at. Okay, good. And today it is a, a profound privilege to have uh, Dr. Esther Zimmerman with us. And um, she has been teaching here for a number of years. I had to ask her because I feel like she's been here as long as I've been here. Um, but she's uh, she's been teaching here for at least five years. Um, and I think she's been interacting. And I, I want to say you were interacting with Rick Rhodes in our department probably long before that. Is that, is that true, Esther? I was an adjunct for a couple of years before that. Yeah, okay. Engaged with BC or with LBC probably for seven, eight years altogether. Okay, okay. Um, and I, those of you who are not on campus would not know the impact that, uh, that she's had, but I, I felt it from faculty and students and administration across campus. Um, she's very, very wise, uh, has experience, her faith is deep and rich. Um, she, she has worked as the director of family and ministry and the director of women in ministry leadership programs in the church and ministry leadership department. I can't believe I said all of that without goofing it entirely. Um, and as well as teaching grad classes. And she also works with the Lausanne Movement's children's ministry wing, which is called the Global Children's Forum. So she is often uh, traveling around the world and, um, and talking about children's ministry. Um, and Esther, maybe, maybe we can just jump in by just asking you that question. You, you've traveled more, you've seen, you, you came back just before the coronavirus sort of became um, this global pandemic, um, but you've, you have a broader reach maybe at the, what the church is dealing with globally and how, how the church is functioning in this time. Is there anything you can give us a, an overall view of how the church is, is dealing with this? 
Sure. I, God's given me the privilege of engaging fairly widely with the global church through my ministry before I came to LBC um, as children's ministry director for a mission organization and still in an ongoing way through my work with Global Children's Forum. So just before um, the, shut, the shutdown happened, I was actually traveling for most of, most of the month. So I was in the UK um, speaking at two women's conferences in February and then almost immediately left for South Africa where I was with a group of global leaders for a week. So it's, it's been interesting to have had some of those ongoing conversations um, concerning the development of the, vi the virus um, with global leaders, but also seeing I, I think having traveled in that month prior, see, seeing the, the curve of the virus coming our direction um, before it actually got here. Hmm. Um, maybe, and maybe just as a way to, to get into this, um, because you've, you've seen from the West to the East, and you've seen how the Western church has been dealing with this, and you've, you've had some experience now with the Eastern church or the Southern, Southern church, we should say. Um, what about the way you see the Western church dealing with some of this, maybe publicly or in your relationships? Um, is, is part of the church really confusing sometimes its view of Western life, Western health, Western values, and what we think is probably ultimately Christian values? Like, are we, are we as the West sometimes confusing these things, our expectations for God's work or, or how the church should succeed? Any, anything like that you could help us with? Yeah, and I certainly don't speak as an expert for the Global South Church, but as I, I listen to my to my friends, particularly in the Global South, I think one of the areas where they've challenged me deeply is our, our expectations of God. Hmm. I think um, in in the Western world generally, we we've come to a place where we expect to be able to fix the world's problems, and in many ways, we've we've done that really well. We've done that effectively. Uh, Francis Schaeffer talks talks about the the primary goal of of life in the West has has become personal peace and affluence. Mm -hmm. Like if if my personal life is is peaceful and I I have what I need, I have have things to enjoy, that really my my world is set. And a lot of our energies, I I think in the West have been devoted towards creating that sense of personal peace and affluence for ourselves. I. I think as as I as I interact with with global friends, they're they're living many of them in a, a very different reality where there's not a great deal of personal peace, there's not a great deal of affluence, and I think perhaps one of the biggest differences is, is their expectation that that is something that God owes them. I think uh, at times in the West, perhaps we've we've come to assume that God's desire for me is personal peace and affluence. Mm. And that's not something that I hear primarily from my friends in the global south. That's interesting, and that that you know that's uh, that resonates when you say things like that because I can see the anxieties in my own church, as it, it almost feels like God has left us when the possibility of personal peace and affluence in a time like this um, becomes harder to imagine. It's it's interesting to watch our own faith sort of shake. I think I can feel it in myself if I'm being honest. Um, how how does how does your experience in those churches? bring wisdom back into our position? How, how do you, how do help us recalibrate, if you will? I think some of my friends push me to a place of, of reading scripture differently. Mm -hmm. um, so I, when I, when I think about some of the last words of Jesus, like Jesus was exceptionally clear with his followers that life wasn't going to be easy. Um, in fact, so, some of, some of his last words were in this world, you're going to have trouble. 
um, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And the, and the hope that he was leaving them with wasn't that the world was ultimately going to be this amazing place. The hope he was leaving them with was that ultimately I've got this and I'm going to be with you in the midst of the trouble. And I think that's a, that's a perspective that, that's easier for some of my friends from the global, global South to hang on to because the trouble in their world is very real and very present. Mm. I think for us, we've managed to hold, uh, hold a lot of trouble at arm's length. Mm. Um, we, we have created a lot of security for ourselves. Um, we've created secure government systems. We've created secure banking systems. We've created healthcare systems that, that usually work and are able to fix amazing numbers of things. Um, and our expectation is that that, that potential is limitless, that the government will be 100% stable, that our banks will be 100% reliable, that the healthcare system will 100% come through all the time. And yeah, I, I'm not sure that's, that's a biblical understanding of our, our position in the world and, and what our expectations of God in our world can be. Hmm. I, I was curious, um, Esther, I was, I was having a Zoom conversation with a good friend of mine who pastors a church, and uh, there's a, a family in his church. They are from China, and hmm. they were in China during the SARS epidemic. Um, and what's actually been comforting to the other members of the church is the way with which this family has engaged this, not in a, not in a sort of cavalier way but there's a sense of been there done that like we know that we know the routine we know the process um and, and even in our offline conversations you talked a little bit about uh some ways people in the global south had experienced various things that actually prepared them have prepared them can you speak a little to that some of this some of the the realities we can talk about well, what are some of the actual realities that people in the global south and so forth are living with that would you would take something like this more in stride than if you come from what we were describing the American mindset. Sure. Yeah. So uh, one of my closest friends is Sri Lankan and she and I were chatting la last week and, and that, that was her comment because I, I said, well, how, how are your family doing right now? Like what, what's life look like in Colombo? And she says, well, the shops are shut. Um, there's a curfew. Uh, we're, we're pretty restricted in our movements, but then she kind of laughed and she says, but, that's nothing new. We've, we've been there, done that. Yeah, yeah. Um, this time last year, I don't know how many of you are aware of um, the Easter bombings that took place in churches ac across Sri Lanka. And uh, the country was on lockdown for, for at least a month following those attacks. So she's like, this time last year, we were on lockdown as well. So I, I think there is a sense of expectation that life is going to have challenges therefore it's less surprising when those challenges come uh, i think for for again because because our systems tend to work well because our country tends to be stable it's very jarring mm -hmm. uh, when our systems cease to work the way we're, we're used to them working dan you you had mentioned this um you had said that even uh this situation has jarred your faith a bit and mm -hmm. i think all of us would have to say that uh, but one of the things we were talking about offline with Esther is this idea of God is always at work. Yeah. And I think it's hard for those of us that, that almost take the Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as almost inerrant, you know, they're written by God. And then all of a sudden I'm not happy. And so how, how do these two things play together? 
Um, can you speak a little bit to how some of your friends from the global south will say, I still see God working, even though there's civil war, even though I walk around with a low-grade fever all the time, so forth and so on. Um, because that, that's something that our, our, our theological ancestors, the Puritans, would have completely understood in 17th century Amer England, uh, but we don't, you know, at least in the last 100 years. Uh, so it would be helpful, I think, for our listeners just to hear that process. It's such an interesting perspective because I think if our expectations of God are that God is going to give me personal peace and affluence, if mm. my personal peace and my affluence go away, my assumption is that God has also gone away. And when, when my, my expectations of God are, are different, I, I think it's a little bit easier to see God in the midst of the challenging seasons that we find ourselves in. So this time last month, I was in South Africa with a, a number of children's ministry leaders from around the world. And one of them was a young man uh, who, who, who lives in, and ministers in, in South Sudan. Um, and I don't know how much you know about the history of South Sudan. It's one of the, the newer countries in our world. It's also one of the least peaceful and least stable countries. And I, I, was, I was just asking him generally, sort of, how is, how is life in your country right now? And he, he sighed and, and shared some of the, the horrific um, reality they're living in. They're, they're living with um, group, groups of militia. Um, they're, they're living with massacres. They're living with refugees. They're living with villages being emptied. They're living with people having nothing to eat because the crops haven't been planted. It's dire. Mm. Um, and yet after sharing all of that and, and also sharing the obvious pain that that brought, it, he went on to say, but God's at work. Mm -hmm. And went on then to share how God was using the, the uncertainty, how he was using the displacement of people, how God was very present and active in the midst of what was happening. And I, I in that moment, I, I won, I wondered how easily I would be able to see God's hand mm. if, it, if it were my family and my village and, and my future that was at stake. And, that, and that's very powerful, Esther, because I think mm. what you seem to be driving at for me is that the fact that our theology has a certain perspective that we call God successful or loving when there are certain results. And I think you're right in the sense that's, that's nowhere in scripture, but we certainly have created a way of life that reflects that or that, you know, that at least trumpets that. So, so help us if, if I can't see what God is doing because he's not improving my life, what is God doing? Yeah. What are some specifics? <laughs> yeah. 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 I want to make a list. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One of the, one of the chapter chapters in the Bible I, I've sat with over the last couple of months has been Psalm 107. Um, Dr. Teague preached on it back at, at Thanksgiving last year in chapel and it caught my attention, but it, it start, starts with the, de the declaration that uh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his love mm -hmm. endures forever. And it's the statement of irrefutable fact. And, and then he goes on to say, let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. And he, he walks through these, these different stories of, of hardship. And he comes, comes to the end and he says, let, let the one who is wise see these things and perceive them. And it, it's as if the, me the message of the psalm is like, where is God at work in your story? Because I, th I think we can ask that question in a, in a time of difficulty. We can ask the question, where is God? But we can ask it in two very, very different ways. 
um, we can ask it with the assumption that somehow God has failed us and God is absent. Or we can ask the question with the assumption that God is good and God is loving. Mm -hmm. We're truly asking, what is it he's, where is he and what is he doing? Mm -hmm. And I think we, everything in our hearts desire life to be peaceful, life to be stable, life to be predictable. We desire to see overtly the goodness and the blessing of God. And yet it's interesting that in the times where God's goodness and blessing isn't so obvious, it's, it's sometimes in those times that God is most deeply at work. Mm-hmm. And as I, I've listened to a couple of friends from Italy, um, so Italy is a Western, Western country with many of the same expectations that, that we have. And yet they, they're ahead of us in the curve of the impact of the virus. And I've, I've listened to some Christian leaders, they're processing what's happening. And I, I'm hearing them say things like, for so long we've been praying for revival maybe this is how God's going to bring it. Mm, mm. Or finally people are realizing that their life isn't in their own hands. Mm, mm. And if, if, if we, if we as people truly desire to see God's kingdom kingdom come, it might take breaking us of our self-sufficiency enough to recognize that we actually have a need of God. Mm. Do you got another plan in there, Esther, somewhere? Could we go, could we go with a plan B on that one? We don't have to. Yeah, 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 yeah. Can someone else go through that and then we just realize it? And yeah, I'll read the autobiography when it's over. Yeah, Esther, I want I want to ask this too. I, I'm curious. Um, you're you're bringing up Europe. Um, you obviously don't have an American accent. That's not Pennsylvania Dutch. I think it's Maine or something like it's that. Maine, yes, yeah, it's, it's Maine. New England. Yeah, yeah, it's New England. Um, but. Um, when Dr. Farnham was on with us last time, he was talking about the secular worldview and, and how what, where he's perceiving this is how the secular worldview leaves us with so little answers to these types of problems. Uh, and it, it's creating sort of a, a, it's demonstrating a bankruptcy. So we've talked about how it's maybe creating sort of a bankruptcy and how we've constructed some American Christianity. But, and there's no surprise to anyone that secular, that, that secularism is, quite prevalent in, in Western Europe. Have you talked to anyone in that regard as far as the, these, these people talking about revival in Italy? Is it, are these challenging people's secular worldviews? Is it, is it that type of thing that we're seeing? I think it's too early to tell what ultimately is going to be the outcome of it. But I, yeah, I think right. hard times for all of us pushes to a place of asking more questions and asking deeper questions asking more spiritual questions than we typically ask when our lives are comfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And ultimately God, God can work in the midst of our questions. Yeah. Well, here's a, here's a question I have. And I, as I've thought through this as a, an American, a monolingual American, um, that, that we, you know, Christians and say Mark mentioned the Puritans, the, the idea that the, it's the Christians who sought to make life better for the poor, for the indigent. Um, that was a very Christian ambition. In fact, it succeeded in a lot of ways to make life comfortable here, which really then drove the secular belief that you could, in fact, make this the kingdom on earth. And now the church has bought into that sort of the fruit of its own labor and now is having a tough time remembering why we started this in the first place. We didn't start this to make this our kingdom. We did this to show the love of God. But in a sense, we've forgotten that. Is, that. is that a fair or accurate, do you think, description of what we, what's happened to us in the West? Yeah, I, 
I I think as as we as we look at scripture, we we recognize that that God's heart is for shalom. His heart is for wholeness in in every area of life. His his design was a good design, and that sin has sin has ravaged every part of his design, probably far more than than we recognize most days. Mm. And that ultimately God's heart is to redeem and to restore all that has been lost. And we, we, t- we talk about the fact that the, the kingdom is both already and not yet. Mm. There's, there's that sense of which um, God, I, I think there's a role for the church in, in sharing and extending a piece of shalom while also recognizing that ultimately the fullness of shalom is only going to be realized when God himself mm. comes back and finishes the work that he's started. Mm. And Daniel, in an earlier podcast, you, talk, you talked about the two hopes and that, that, we, that we have to have a hope as believers that we can make a difference in our world. But we, if we're tempted to, to view that hope as a substitute for the ultimate hope, that God's going to actually make a final difference in the world, that I think that's where the danger comes. It, it, somehow we've got to be able to hold those two things in tension. Hmm. What, what I would like to ask, follow up on that, Esther, is uh, when we talked about this sort of already not yet, um, the, in some of the previous podcasts, we talked about how a lot of Western Christians, um, because of ad, advances we've made, because of, of some of the things that we've done, we can sort of focus on the already and almost think that many of the not yet things can be avoided. Uh, I mean, I think you can always hear Dan and I saying that, right? Can we avoid some of this? Um, and, and is there, is there a, is there a sense where if, if we have societies that don't have the resources and actually, actually to knock out some of this stuff where there's a greater strength in their hope for the not yet, yeah. is that, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I, I, I talk with American Christians, especially American Christian young people sometimes, and there's a lot of ambivalence about heaven. Uh, mm. It's like, well, yeah. why would I actually want to go to heaven? I actually kind of like life here. Mm. And I think when, when life here feels pretty good, um, our felt need and our, our yearning for the not yet, for the realization fully of God's kingdom, um, it's not nearly as acute, and yet when when I when I think about some of, some of my friends who are living in deeply broken places where it's really obvious that that the already isn't okay, mm-hmm. there's there's a corresponding desire and yearning for the not yet, and I, I think that's something we have to learn from our our friends in the global south. Mm-hmm. So I think that became very clear to me um, on a trip to Congo that I, I took probably thinking it was maybe 12 years ago now. So at the, at the time I, I flew into northeastern Congo on an MEF flight. Um, northeastern Congo was in the, continues to be a, a very broken part of the world. There's a lot of militia activity. It's one of the church leaders there essentially said every system's broken, our justice system's broken, our educational system's broken, our government is broken, there, nothing is working in our country. And I mean, that, that was very evident in the few days that I, I was there. I've never been in a part of the world that was that broken before or since. And 
one of the evenings I was there, I had dinner with um, another pilot who had just come back that day from flying a mission um, to a remote area of the country that had just been attacked by rebels. He was working with Samaritan's Purse and uh, as we were sitting at dinner, he just shared a little of, of the, the, the horror of sin and its effects that he had seen that day and it really was horrific. Um, but the, the piece that, that stuck to me at the end of that conversation was he, he just shook his head and he says, you know, there's not a day goes by that I don't beg God to come back and fix mm. this mess. Mm. And that, mm. that statement has stuck with me because it, mm. it challenged me. I said, like, how often am I, am I begging God to fix this mess? Mm. And I mm. think some of that is I just don't always notice the mess because I, I'm insulated from it. But is that, is that, it's, does, I'm sorry, Mark, I'm going to cut you no, off. Go ahead, go ahead, go. Yeah. I mean, you said sin, and I think maybe that's what easily gets lost in all of this, that we can say, well, this is a medical problem. It's a, it's a viral issue. And so that's not really a sin issue. That's something, and I think Mark has rightly criticized this concept of let's declare a war on coronavirus as if it's somehow just a militant enemy. But the reminder here that we're talking about a sin and, and is, is what's happening in the Western church, just, just the minimizing not only of heaven, but a minimizing of sin. Like that's something that can also be conquered. We, it, its effects can be minimized through a proper use of medication and governmental policy. I mean, have we just, do we not have a real true understanding of sin then? And we just masked it with hmm. technology and comfort in that? I'm not, I'm not sure that I comprehend God's original plan for our world. I mean, I feel like I have little glimpses of what God intended, but all of us ultimately live in a world that has been broken almost beyond recognition. Hmm. And sometimes we, we view sin purely in its spiritual sense, where we recognize that sin has separated me from a relationship with God and that in, in his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus made it possible to restore that, that broken relationship. And yet sin, sin has impacted every aspect of our, our broken world. And I don't, think we, I don't think we grasp the beauty of the gospel hmm. until we recognize the depth of the brokenness. Mm -hmm. And the, the good, I, I had a, a, a leader, church leader in Africa at one point ask me, like, what's good news about the gospel for a child whose parents have died of AIDS and, and who has nothing to eat today? Oh, yeah. And again, it was another one of those questions that, that jarred me. Uh, like, what, what is good news about the gospel? And I think that's where the already and not, not yet com comes in. Because there's, I mean, ultimately, the good news is that God's going to come back and fix it. But there's also this place where, like, God has tasked us with his people with, showing his love in tangible ways and um, giving a glimpse of the wholeness that he intended for people, even while realizing we can't actually fix all of the problems in our world. You know, Dana, since you're, you, you've given sort of uh, true confession, I'll have to dish my, some of my confession that, that sometimes, um, and particularly if you're a historian, this is hard because you're, you're so influenced, not influenced, but you're at least running up against Marxist ideology. And, and, and there's a part of me sometimes it feels like when I emphasize the hope, heaven, the other, the Marxist is there ready to bludgeon me with, ah, 
there you go. There it is. That's your opioid. There it is. <laughs> and you're just passing out the drugs. And, and, and so I, I have to admit at times where I feel like, okay, I need to speak more about how Christ can, and the gospel and the church can redeem some of the broken stuff today. And by doing that though, there's a tendency to underplay the not yet because you're waiting for, you know, Karl Marx to slap you across the face with, uh, with that. Um, and so, but I think in, in, in maybe you almost have to be in comfortable conditions to, to even think like that. Uh, mm. I go back to some stuff I read from Miroslav Wolf and, and he's made some critiques about uh, the Western world and said, you know, he, he came from the Balkans where during the civil war and said, you know, you have to live in a nice, comfortable, middle-class heated home just to think like that in some mm. cases. And I wonder if that's, part of what we're running up against in the West where um, where our, our people, our, our brothers and sisters from the majority world, they don't have that luxury and it's actually made their faith stronger. Hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I resonate with the, 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 the Marxist piece only because, yeah, the, the idea is, you know, well, as soon as you invoke God, it means you're not interested in actually solving any problems. And Esther, you've, you've mentioned that the tension between wanting to make changes, but knowing those changes aren't sufficient. And I, I think that for me is a very easy place to slip into. I can equate, I can equate economic prosperity with God fixing it rather than using that as a way to point to what God is ultimately going to do and confusing the, the, the outcome of all things in the work of Christ and these temporary measures to sort of fix things now. Um, and I wonder whether, and maybe Esther, you can help us is, is this the way we can use something like the coronavirus? I mean, I've, I've got, a, as I've mentioned before, I've got friends with cancer. It hasn't happened often in my life, but it's happening now. And I can't offer anything. I can't offer any solution. But kindness, which is not actually going to fix the situation. <laughs> but mm -hmm. so, so I have to recalibrate even what it means to love the person. To love them doesn't mean to fix it. It means to point them to Christ somehow. So I, I mean, how, how do we live in that tension? Do we, do we see what we're doing is not final? Do we have to actually train ourselves to to see what we're doing is just temporary is it you use the word tension and i i think truth is often in the tension yeah. between two 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 other truths and the the lausanne lausanne con conference has has wrestled with with that it, it's is the is the gospel is the good news a message that we proclaim or is it also a reality that we live? Hmm. And I, I, I love the conclusion they've come to that, that we, a, we actually cannot divide. We can't divide it neatly like that. And they, they, they use the, the picture of, of like the two, the two wings of a bird or the two blades of a scissor. Like you, you can't, if you take it apart, it becomes something else. Hmm. And I, I find that a helpful pic, picture. And I, I mean, look, looking, looking a little bit back at the, the origins of the Lausanne movement, uh, that, that's been a tension that they've had to live with. And it's actually been leaders in the global south that have pushed for that tension. So the, the first Lausanne co Congress took place, in, I think, in 1970. It was the early 1970s anyway. And it was, I, I believe, Fra Francis Schaeffer, Billy Graham, John Stott. Um, there were a number of key, key leaders that convened that first gathering. And the question they were really asking was, like, what will it take for the gospel to reach the ends of the earth? And 
in that for in that early gathering, it was a group of church leaders from Latin America who really pushed the question of social justice. And they said, what place does social justice have in evangelism? And Bill, Billy Graham, um, this, and you could go back and I always a little concerned about misquoting, you can go back <laughs> and check it online. Um, but the, the story goes that Billy, Billy Graham and, and um, some, of, some of the Latin American leaders actually clashed fairly, fair, fairly significantly at that first gathering yeah. over this issue of, is the gospel the spoken message of the good news of the cross, or is the gospel also have some kind of tangible aspect to it? And it, they, they left that first gathering really in that place of disagreement and it wasn't until a little bit later on reflection that the story goes, Billy Graham went back to the Latin American leaders and said, you've helped me understand something that I couldn't mm. see clearly mm. from my Western perspective. Mm. And out of that then came the Lausanne, the Lausanne understanding of the, the whole church, meaning North and South, East and West, taking the whole gospel, meaning both the spoken word of evangelism with the lived actions uh, of the gospel, to the whole world. Hmm. And I think it captures well what what happens when when the whole church comes together to ask important questions. Hmm. Sometimes it pushes us to different places in our thinking and our answers than we would get to in our own from our own perspective. So so you're finding some hmm. and I know there's a lot of modern criticism for, for good reason of America, Western church, Western blindnesses, but you're saying that there's actually some benefit there or some good to be brought into the dialogue that the the Western church has some, has some good things to contribute as long as they're willing to listen, obviously not think they've got all the answers. Yeah. Um, is it, what, what, what kind of things do you think the Western church has been able to contribute yeah. to some of these discussions? It really is a, it really is a balance because we can go to one of two places. We can either go to the place that says we have all the answers. We have a corner on truth. Let us tell the rest of the world how to do it. Mm -hmm. Or we can, we, we can go to a place where we, we become so humble, we say, well, we've made all the mistakes, we've got nothing to contribute, and we remove our voice from the conversation. And I, I think it's important, uh, you, you've said it in the question, but it's important that we both share and we listen, and we do both well. So, I mean, as a European, I, I look at the American church, and there, there's, I mean, there's huge strengths. Um, there's, there's significant theological study, reflection, teaching that takes place in the American church. There's a spirit of generosity and a desire to make a difference um, that the American church brings. There's a, an optimism that's part of the American culture that, that's often part of the church of like, sure, we can fix this thing. Which that can go a few directions that are either positive or negative, but intrinsically yeah. optimism is a good thing for us as believers. We should be optimistic about the future. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm sure there's a, lot, a long list of other things, but I, I do believe that the American church has something of worth to share with the world. A question I had too, you, you said offline, and I love this, I, I, wanna, I wrote it down, I don't want to lose this. You said that we, we often bring more of our cultural baggage uh, into our faith than we realize. And, and I'm curious, what, see, I see real hope. And so I'm curious to see what you would say this. What tools, what, what is it about the church that, ha that we have the ability to have sort of those conversations like Billy Graham and that other gentleman, where there's a genuine give and take 
that mm. probably can't happen at the, at the United Nations, that might not happen at a NATO meeting. Um, what is that about the church that we have that separates us that way? The church is beautiful. I mean, I have to say that I'm in the church and ministry leadership department. <laughs> I, I really do believe that the church is beautiful. The church at its best is so special. So I'm, I'm going to step back from, from the global piece yeah. of that and think about our local church in Allentown. I remember at one stage sitting in a Sunday school class, looking around at the other people in the class and realizing there was a city detective there were two people from the state police. There was an ex-secret service agent, and then there were three ex-cons. Mm. And we, we, were all, we were all sitting side by side in the same class, studying God's word together. And mm. I remember in that moment asking, like, where else, where else in the world would, these, would this group of people possibly be in the same room on mm -hmm. equal footing with one another, talking about things that matter? Mm -hmm. And I, I think that the, the church has so much to bring to the conversation, but it, it, it's unique in that we, we just, we're, we're a forum where, where God has said before him and his eyes were all equal and he doesn't have favorites. And there, yeah, I, I really believe there are things we can do as the church that the mm -hmm. world cannot imitate. And is that, is that a place I think is, as I, and I remember I had a phone conversation with my own pastor, a PCA pastor, when this thing first started and it felt to me like the church wasn't ready for this, which, which unnerved me since this is the one thing the church should be ready for. You mm -hmm. said in one of your, in one of your quotes, you provided us just some help. And I love this quote from a Filipino and I'm not sure who or where it's our time to shine. Um, mm -hmm. And I, you know, seeing this as an opportunity, but I think the Western church, one of our profound weaknesses is that we've taken the gospel and we've individualized it, which is true, right? Each individual is, crucially important. So I think that's, an, that's, a, that's a proper outcome of gospel thinking, but it's gone too far. And, I, and it almost seems to me like we can't see what God is doing as the church, which may not mean I'm the one that's going to make this, get through this alive, right? It may mm -hmm. not be my mm -hmm. fortune where the grace of God is measured. It may be in the success of the church. And I, after hearing you say that, and you're right, I, I, I often said to students in class, I said, you know, it's going to come a time when you're going to have to decide, am I a Christian or an American? Am I a Christian or um, French? Am I a Christian? Or, I mean, at some point you're going to have to say my identity is with this group of people called the church. And I think for Americans, it seems to me that's a hard spiritual transition to make that, that, that I'm more interested in what happens to the success of Christ's body than me individually. Is that, mm -hmm. is that mm -hmm. fair? And has, has have other churches, maybe in the global South, have a better picture of that corporate reality where we can oftentimes struggle with it? Mm. I think a lot of cultures do a better job of, of understanding life through the lens of community mm. than, than we in the West do. And I would add Europeans to that. Mm. I think we're, we're all on a cultural spectrum. Americans just happen to be really, really far on the individualistic side. <laughs> right. But yeah, no, none, of us, none of us Westerners are very good at, at laying down our rights for somebody else. Mm. Uh, you know, I had a conversation with a friend of mine who's a, a PCA pastor, does a lot of church planning, and it was a ha there was a group of us having a Zoom meeting, and, and he asked this really, I thought was a really good question, and, and, and I think maybe it's a question that 
we as the American church need to ask ourselves continually, and maybe we'll start to move into some of these conversations. He said, what do you think in this pandemic, he hedged it, in this pandemic, what do you think, based on your observation, churches have done well, mm. and what have churches done poorly? And, and then that kind of sparked our conversation. Uh, but I think that's a really poignant question, because then that opens up the conversation like this. Um, I mean, if we weren't all asking these questions, we wouldn't be having this conversation. But then it also means maybe like Billy Graham, I need to sit with my brother in the uh, majority world and hear from them so I can get a better understanding of what, you know, and so maybe it is the individualism, maybe it is the, uh, and one of the things I, I brought out was what I've seen in my church that's been so well since this is the, the deacons have actually been contacting us once a week mm. saying, how are you guys doing? Do you need anything? It's, it's, it's usually my experience in, in American church has been the deacons are there when you're in a jam uh, opposed to the deacons being rather proactive uh, and saying, Hey, you know, could we keep that going? Right. Could we keep that going? What does that look like in the church? Mm. Um, so, yeah. So I think there's, there's some really good questions that could be asked. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, I think that the cliche about crisis is that it's always an opportunity, but it, it's also, it, it's a truth. Um, I think in any crisis, we have an opportunity. I think it remains for us to be seen what, what we do with that opportunity. So I, I've heard a, a number of people, and I think in your earlier podcast, you referred to it as well, but how the, the early Christians in a, in a plague experienced by Rome really rose to, to the occasion in, in terms of offering care and becoming known for their selflessness and, and the love that they shared. And that, and that in that season really shifted perspective on, on, on Christians. And it, it, we have an opportunity in this season. I don't think we know yet what, what, how history will look back and say, yeah. well, the church of the, of 2020 did this. Yeah. Um, I, as I've talked to a, a few, few of my friends in ar around the world, they've, they've expressed concern that perhaps the things that the world is hearing from the church aren't necessarily the messages we wish they were hearing. Mm. So it's um, become apparent sometimes through no fault of anybody, but one of the ways that the virus has really taken hold in a number of countries is through church gatherings. Mm. Mm. And as one of, mm. one of my friends in a, in a European country, not at all friendly, the gospel said, people already hate us. This isn't helping our reputation. <laughs> wow. And wow. I kind of cringed when she said that because we've, yeah, I, I, I know, I know from conversations with her, it's already been hard for Christians in that, that part of the world. And I would hate to think that people's memory of the church in this season was we, we spread the virus. Mm. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, 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 I hope, I, I, I'm no prophet, but I, I, I hope that there, there will be ways that we respond to this as opportunity that will that will grow the influence of God's kingdom that will change people's perceptions of the church. Um, my friend in Philippines who she she's chairman of Lausanne's board and eternally optimistic. Um, she's wonderful but here here's what she said about the church in Philippines and it, it challenged me. She said we're in complete lockdown but the body of Christ is not. The church in Philippines has never been more prayerful 
more generous and more united in proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel. God is giving us new eyes to see opportunities to join him in his work, mm. our time to shine. And I just, uh, her words caught, caught me. Uh, and I, I think that that phrase, like God is giving us new eyes to see new opportunities to join mm. him in his work. What a beautiful testimony. And I would love to think that as God's people, we would be remembered for that. Mm-hmm. And some so, of it might be too, it'll be not so much during the pandemic as much as afterwards. Because mm-hmm. right now the the thing we can do is what we're doing. We're social distance and, and things like that. We can't be like the early church and just run in and, and take care of people. But it, 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 there's a lot of talk right now about what is the post coronavirus world going to look like? And all the way from are we allowed to go to restaurants to will all athletic events be played without fans? You know, all sorts of questions like that. Um, so to be very interesting for the church to see what the church looks like in a post uh, pandemic world. And like you said, I think you're right. It's going to take new eyes and, and new ways of looking at things like that. And I wonder too, it just, you know, as I, you say, yeah, it, I guess it's an awkward phrase to say crisis is an opportunity. Um, I think of Mark Farnham from our conversation on Monday saying, if he hadn't gone through suffering, he wouldn't have learned what he learned. And he, he says, if I can actually say this, I'm, I wouldn't go back. Right. And yeah. is there, yeah. is there something about, yeah, this crisis where we as the church have an opportunity. And I think you said it, Esther, which I think was really a profound statement that you've, you've lost control of your world. Don't, don't imagine you're going to get it back because there's mm-hmm. going to be something else later. Don't. And as the church, do we, are we more, um, I don't know, proactive about talking about our ultimate hope. Um, I think Mark said that we've lost a real good discussion of eschatology. Like that's not the center yeah. of our worship anymore. Yeah. yeah. Um, because we're really always focusing on, on the now that we really need to start. And I, I'm wondering whether the Western church does need its own reformation to start thinking eternally rather than temporally. Is there, do we have to just be more overt about talking about the eternality of our faith and about the hope beyond this life? Have we, have we left that off? Is that something that we can take opportunity to recast, do you think? in this day and age? I think somehow we've got to be able to do both. We've got, we, you talked, you talked earlier about the two hopes. We've, we've got to be able to offer one without letting go of the other. Hmm. I, I, one of my, my favorite prayers or, or poems, I'm not quite sure which it was, but it was, it was written and, and read as part of a funeral service for a, a bishop in, in Central America who was gunned down partly because of the, the work he had done on behalf of poor people in his country. And I, if I can maybe just take a moment to read it, I, I think yes, it, yeah. it's one I've gone back to often. I feel like it captures that tension um, of ministry and the already and the not yet and holding on to both of those hopes. Mm. He says this, it helps now and then to step back and take a long view. The kingdom is not only beyond our efforts, It is even beyond our vision. We accomplish in our lifetime only a fraction of the magnificent enterprise that is God's work. We cannot do everything, and there is a sense of liberation in realizing this. This enables us to do something and to do it very well. It may be an incomplete, but it's a beginning. A step along the way, an opportunity for the Lord's grace to enter and do the rest. We may never see the end results, 
Hmm. But that is the difference between the master builder and the worker. Hmm. We are workers, not master builders. Ministers, not messiahs. Hmm. We are prophets of a future, not our own. Hmm. Beautiful. Wow. Wow. I love those words, especially that phrase, we cannot do everything. Um, and there's a sense of liberation in realizing this. This enables us to do something and to mm, do it very well. Mm, hmm. That's really beautiful. Um, and frames, I think, the whole conversation really well. And Esther, and a lot of things you've contributed to our thinking, even in this time. It's about 48 minutes in. Um, uh, I would like to open it to, to questions, yep. if we could, if anybody's interested in, in jumping in on that, so we can sort of stay within the hour. Yeah, we have a handful of people, so feel free to um, type in your question, or you could turn on your camera and ask your question if you so desire. And what was the, the what was the gentleman that wrote that, Esther? Do you have a reference for that poem? Because I think I know I would like to get back at that myself. It's um, it's cited in Ruth Haley Barton's book, "Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership." Okay. Um, but it's um, Bishop Ken Utner is the one who wrote it, and it was in memory of Oscar Romero. Oscar Romero, right. Okay. Mm. That, that's, a, that's a great point, too, I think, as, as, as we're waiting for some people to comment. Um, I think, go back to the, the, the conversation Billy Graham had with that gentleman and, and how our, our history and our culture influences us. Um, there really has been, in American evangelicalism, a bifurcation between social reform and revivalism or the gospel. Um, and Dan and I've noticed that so much because we've spent so much time studying 19th century Anglo-American social reform where revivalism was a means. It was, it was not separated out. It was a piece of this part. Now, granted, we, today we might think they were a little overly optimistic with their post-millennialism, but uh, but still, that, that, that bifurcation. And so there's Billy Graham, a product of that, um, and, and needed to hear it from uh, someone from the majority world. And, and, and right away, some people might say, well, oh, that, that, that was an honor of some liberation theology guy. I'm not sure I want to, I'm not sure I can handle that. Um, but that, that's, uh, that's an important thing that we need to hear these voices that all truth is God's truth. Uh, and so not to have that, to, we, we, we fall into those traps. We're products of our history. Um, and yeah. so that's really important. I, that struck me when I, when I heard that. I thought that makes sense that Billy Graham would take that position in light of his cultural milieu at the time. Yeah. Yes, we, the danger is equally that we, we back off from the spoken proclamation of the gospel and and the truth that Christ died for our sins and that each of us desperately needs a restored relationship with Jesus as the center point of mm -hmm. what he wants to do in our lives and in the world. So we, we go back to that tension. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've, I've, I found after doing intellectual history for as many years as I've done it, that the, the, um, the way to define human error is rarely that it's, it's rarely wrong. It's usually just too narrow. It, it, the, the mistakes that people make are not wrong they've just taken one small part and turned it into an explanation for the whole. When if they realized that they were onto something really genius, if they could have just added to it the wide variety of truth that that's required, it would have been a balanced view or a wiser view. And I think the American church similar, they, they've landed on this gospel piece over the end of the 19th, 20th century, which was right. That had been lacking. I think uh, the fundamentalists got it. They knew what the mm -hmm. dangers of evolutionary thought would be. Or, or just, the social gospel. 
or they or they yeah. hammered on the yeah. other side, right? But yeah. then they thought that was the end all be all, rather than saying, as Esther's saying here, that you need that activity with the spoken gospel itself. Um, yeah, narrowness yeah, can be our problem. We're, it seems like we keep coming back round to this, even though this is our only our third podcast. But it, it, we're coming back <laughs> round to this that in this negotiation, one of the postures we need to take as citizens of the kingdom of of God while living in the kingdom of man is that Christianity is often complex. It needs nuance. And there are times when you, and and you said it, Esther, you need to hold things in tension. Mm -hmm. Uh, You you need to hold things in this. It's, it's, and it's, and like you just said, Dan, it's not simplistic. It's not an oversimplistic response oftentimes creates more problems uh, rather than, I love the way you said it, Esther, kind of just holding these things in tension. So I don't see anyone commenting, so we must have just answered all their we questions. Did we, well yeah, we did done, it. Esther. We're good. We're good. We well done. Excellent. Excellent. I'm very so. aware that there's a couple of Bible theology profs <laughs> on the call who teach on this, and I really would value their perspective if, if they're in a position to comment at the moment. Okay. There, she's asking for Joke, it. So Dr. Kim's sure. coming on there. I see something. Yeah. Yeah, I, <clears throat> I just, um, I, I appreciate the conversation. I really, really like the, the things that you guys are, are mentioning. I, I just wanted to, to comment on an observation in relation to Billy Graham. Mark was talking about how he was in his milieu, and he would, of course, emphasize the preaching of the gospel, which, yes, that's true, except he was one of the drivers of the new neo-evangelical movement. Sure. And the neo-evangelical movement, in the first issue of Christianity Today said, we want to unite conservative theology with liberal social engagement. Yeah, yeah. And so the, the thing that I, I guess I take from that is we need to hold our own visions of these things pretty lightly because th- we can get locked into our own vision. And if somebody's, somebody else doesn't quite agree with exactly what we think, then we end up being someone who opposes somebody who actually, I think, does agree with us. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a good point. I mean, and Graham went through his own evolution, right, from segregated crusades in the 40s yeah. to, to making yeah. changes. And I, I think that's one of, the, one of the things I appreciate. Well, I think modern, I think fundamentalists get a lot of bad rap, but, you know, when faced with it, many that come out of that movement made serious changes to the theology to, to represent the gospel. And I think Graham is, is certainly one of them. So, And even even the, the movement he's part of with Carl F.H. Henry and the uneasy conscious of fundamentalism, which is from the 1940s, yeah, that's right. um, which, which starts that out. But again, uh, contingency is always there when you're in the 60s and 70s and there's social revolution how you negotiate those conversations if you're Billy Graham become very difficult, right? Because even though you're, you're part of this camp from the 1940s, how that language is being used maybe in the 60s and 70s, you have to be so careful how you nuance yourself and respond, uh, which is exactly what we're getting at today, right? Is, 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 um, and just as a, a pitch, I think we are having Dr. Kim on as uh, a person we're interviewing in a couple of weeks. Yeah. So, and if you're, if you're, if you're into pitches here, we also have uh, coming up, I believe next week, uh, President Tommy Kiedis will be coming yeah. on to talk about pastoral leadership in a time of crisis. Um, yeah. So we've got a, a good, a good range and we're glad for, uh, for Mark and, uh, and Esther to start us off so well. Are there anybody, is there anybody else, anyone from the, you don't have to just be from the B&T department to, <laughs> to ask the question. 
And, and also too, fast. Joe, did you have anything anything else you wanted to add or, or respond to or ask? No, I'll wait until the, the interview you guys do with me. Okay. <laughs> yeah, don't give it all away now, Dr. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Do, do you want to do a teaser? Is there a teaser? Yeah, you I could do a teaser. Um, well, I guess the only teaser I would say is that I, I will agree with a lot of what you guys have already been talking about. But, <laughs> <laughs> but we would hope that, I guess, right? <laughs> yes, yes. Right. Yes. The unity of the church and all that might require something like that, yeah. Well, this has been great. Um, Esther, yes. any, any closing remarks or thoughts? I mean, I, I, think, I think you've given us so much to think about and I'm so grateful for your time. Uh, thank you. Thank you for seeking to include um, perspectives from the, from the globe. I, I think we have a lot to learn from our brothers and sisters mm. from around the world. Amen. Uh, just appreciate the conversation. Mm. Thank you. Well, thank you, Esther. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mark.